Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the last book of the Bible. If you did not bring a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, you can flip back to the near the end of the book, and the last of the 66 books is the book of Revelation. And the big numbers mark out the chapters, the little numbers mark out the verses, and we're going to be reading Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. I invite you to please stand for the reading of the inspired Word of God. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. May God bless the reading of his word. You can have a seat. like to start with just a little explanation here. <clears throat> you may think I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt here, but this is actually an Indonesian shirt called Batik, and I'm actually quite dressed up today by Indonesian standards, except for perhaps my shoes. I asked Melody if, if I could wear these shoes this morning. She said, you're the missionary, you can wear whatever you want. <clears throat> About a hundred years ago, a minister by the name of <clears throat> Hendrik Vanderklift 
was sent by the Dutch government to serve the needs of civil servants and soldiers working in the Dutch East Indies, which is Indonesia. Vandercliff built a home for himself in a town called Kolaka among the Tolaki people. Though he was sent to minister to the Dutch, his eyes were turned to the local people around him. And soon he met a young man by the name of Walla Wonga. After about a year, Vandercliff moved his family to a smaller village to avoid a sickness, an epidemic that had begun to spread in the larger town. And here in this smaller village, he saw the needs of the local people and began working to meet some of those needs. He built a school, he opened a clinic, he helped people improve their farming practices. But what gripped Vandercliff the most was seeing the local people worship idols and fearfully serve spirits that they believed in. And as he helped the people in healthcare and education and in farming, he proclaimed the gospel, the good news to them. And God began to work. After about two years of his arrival in the village, people began to believe the message he was sharing from the Bible to give their lives to Jesus and to be baptized. And the first baptism was that young man that he had met in the largest city, Walla Wonga. And then after that, a small group of others, including an entire family, were baptized. And God began to move among the people in this village of Mowewe, among the Tolaki people. Vandercliff eventually ministered in surrounding areas. He saw churches planted, some of which still exist to this day. A few others came over in the years following and joined Vandercliff in his work. But after a while, he began to face challenges, especially as World War II began. Japan became, came and started a ruthless occupation of Indonesia. Vandercliff and his colleagues were forced to leave and the church underwent an intense time of trial. Many church members scattered and hid. Church finances were zero. The Japanese confiscated much of the church property. After World War II, as the remaining churches were about to form a denomination, they faced more trial. There were, there were murders of some of the church leaders. Right, right at the time, they were about to form a denomination. And some decided they didn't want to continue in the mission that Vandercliff had started and that God was working among this people. Some turned away from their former beliefs, turned back to their former beliefs, turned away from the gospel, turned to their former beliefs, and the gospel did not spread much within the Tolaki people or to the other 10-plus people groups in this province. But some stood firm in their faith, and in 1957, the first synod meeting in the city of Kandari was held for the Protestant Church of Southeast Sulawesi. This is the city that Melody and, our, and I and our team have been living in. Well, I want to come back to this story. I'll turn now to the book of Revelation here and just begin by asking, what, what is this book? Pastor John said earlier, we're about to study Ecclesiastes, one of the most difficult books in the Bible. Well, if Ecclesiastes is up there, Revelation is right next to it. It's been shrouded with mysteries throughout the ages for the church. But what is the purpose of this book? And I, I think we can see that. We see in chapter 1 
that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. To show his servants what must soon take place. Revelation 1, verse 1. This purpose statement is at the end of the book also. In Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter, verse 6, it says, The Lord sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. This book is addressed to the church. It reveals this great conflict in the earth. And it highlights the victory of the Lord Jesus the lion and the lamb, who conquered through his death and resurrection. Friends, this is the glorious and awesome conclusion of our story as believers in him. And it is meant to be a comfort to us, as well as a battle call for us to hold fast to our faith in Jesus. So one major theme is the worldwide conflict that takes place concerning all the nations, as God and Satan each demand universal allegiance. Satan and the beast and the prostitute that it talks about deceive the nations and try to usurp authority over them. But God, is, through Christ, is ransoming people to himself, fulfilling his promise of blessing that he gave to Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And the saints who are called out from among all these peoples of the earth are patiently enduring this suffering at the hands of evil powers while engaging in this battle for the nations. And then God comes at last to avenge the blood of his saints, pouring out his wrath on all the wicked with his judgments, his perfectly just judgments. And the Lamb will mend and make all things new, wiping away all tears, healing the nations that he's ransomed by his blood. And the Lamb and his bride will at last be together eternally. In this book of Revelation, we see what we just sung. The Lamb has overcome. The Lamb will be victorious. Well, our text today has a snapshot of that story. It's a snapshot of this major theme in the book of Revelation. So as we begin, we can see that there are three messages delivered by three angels that show us the different parts of God's worldwide, God's cosmic salvation plan. I won't take time to go into this much now, but Who are these angels? We we see these angels all throughout this book of Revelation. In this book, we see that they are powerful servants of God, majestic beings who continually praise him, who carry out his will. These are creatures that have been given assignment to watch over galaxies and stars. And yet, as we were praying this morning before service, these, these angels, the things that they long to look into are the things of salvation. God's salvation plan. That's what really draws their attention. And in the book of Revelation, the angels are given these assignments of carrying messages to the saints, of announcing God's judgments that are about to happen, and even being involved in carrying them out. And at the end of the book, when John receives the closing part of this message, he is actually tempted to fall down and worship 
the angel that's giving him the message. And the angel says, no, don't worship me. Worship God. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, and the prophets in this great plan of God. So in this text, uh, we see four things. There is an eternal gospel to be proclaimed to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. There's a battle for the worship and the allegiance of the inhabitants of the earth. Thirdly, we see there's a terrifying, righteous judgment that's coming. And then we see there's a call and a great hope for the saints. So first, there is this eternal gospel. What is this gospel? What is this message that's to be proclaimed? Well, it is the message that we find at the beginning of this book. And indeed, throughout the book, even though this word gospel is used only here in this passage. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, in his opening words, John writes, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and who has made us a kingdom, priests to God, to his God and Father. Jesus freed us from our sins by his blood. What is the most used title of Jesus in this book? It's not the lion, though that is used very prominently. It's not Christ, though we see that used a number of times. It's not even the name Jesus that's used most in this book. It's the lamb. The lamb, the lamb who was slain. It's the message in chapter 5 of this book when John is told that the lion, John is told, don't weep because no one's there to open the scrolls. No one's found worthy. Don't weep. Look, the lion of Judah is here and he's worthy. And John looks and what does he see? He says he sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain. And of that lamb it is said, worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open the seals for by your blood you purchased people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. This gospel is that Jesus has ransomed for himself a people, and he's done it by his blood, dying and rising again, and calling a people to himself, a people that believe in what he's done, and his gospel transforms them into, it says, a kingdom of priests unto God. And it draws us up into this worship of the Redeemer, and to bring others into this worship. And in our text, we see this call announced by the first angel. Fear God and give him glory, it says in verse 7. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Revelation 5 is a worship scene. Revelation 7 is a worship scene. The beginning of this chapter, 14, is a worship scene. The Lamb ransoms people from death, from the, from the domain of darkness, and calls them into their greatest destiny and highest joy to worship. Like we read between the songs just now in Isaiah, God is going to cause righteousness and praise to sprout up from all the nations, and he's going to do it through the message of his gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus that brings this body of worshipers into his kingdom. And this gospel that we have is an eternal gospel, it says. 
It transcends any one particular nation or race of people. No nation or people can lay claim on this gospel or their version of it as their own. Kings and kingdoms will pass away, but God's word, the gospel, will never pass away. The grass withers and the flowers fail, fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, 1 Peter 1, verse 25. Secondly, in this text, we see the battle that's going on for the allegiance of the nations. And throughout the book, we see this battle going on. In verse 8, the second angel comes and he announces the fall of Babylon. Babylon, who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality, it says in verse 8. The, if you translate it, it's the same translation as later in the, it's the same words as later in this text. It's the wine of the wrath of her immorality. This is a picture of the nations raging in their indulgence and rebellion against their creator. They're drunk with sinful passion. And this calls to mind images from Psalm 2 and another psalm that we read already. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? They say, let us burst off the bonds that God has put on us. Let us run wildly in this passion and immorality. And the nations are mentioned repeatedly in this book of Revelation. The beast and the prostitute and the devil are trying to deceive the nations And God is drawing the nations into worship through the message of his gospel. These are the things that must soon take place that chapter 1 in this book talks about and these are the things that are taking place right now in our world. It was taking place then when John received and wrote this vision and it's still taking place now, this great battle. Jesus said in Matthew 24, this gospel will be proclaimed in all the earth as a testimony to all the nations. And then, what? The end will come. Jesus talked about wars and rumors of wars, about false prophets rising up and leading many astray. The battle for the nations rages, and many, so many, are under the deception of our enemy. And we, as the saints, those who've trusted in Christ, those who've been called as his children, we're, we're right in the middle of this battle, aren't we? And who has been entrusted with the task of continuing to proclaim this good news? Well, it's not the angel. The angels are assisting God, but it's, it's us that are called with this task. It's the saints, it's the church that's entrusted with this to proclaim the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Third, in this text, we see a truly terrifying judgment that's to come. In verse 9, there's a message from a third angel, and it's a message of judgment on anyone who worships the beast and receives its mark. That person is going to drink from another kind of cup, And it's not the wine of the passion of immorality. It says it's the wine of God's wrath, which it says is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Verse 10 says that the worshipers of the beast will be tormented with fire and sulfur 
in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And they will have no rest, it says in verse 11. Their smoke is rising forever and ever. This picture of the Lamb on his throne is, is awesome. And we should stand in holy awe and fear. It's a terrible thing for those who worship the beast. But it's not a place of terror for us, the saints. Melody reminded me of this recently. We were reading as a family in the book of Exodus. When God met Moses on the mountain to give the law, it was a terrifying thing. The people could not come near or touch the mountain lest they should die, it said. And the people in the camp trembled. But as Melody pointed, me out, pointed out to me in Hebrews 12, reminded me that Hebrews 12 talks about coming to a different kind of mountain. It says, you have not come to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, it says. This is a place of rejoicing. It's a place of rejoicing in chapter 7 of Revelation. It's a place of rejoicing at the beginning of this chapter 14 with, for the saints on Mount Zion with the Lamb. <clears throat> Fourthly, we see in this text <clears throat> a call, a battle call, and a great hope for the saints. So after the description of this judgment that's coming upon the worshipers of the beast, verse 12 simply says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. It's as if John is saying, in the midst of all this chaos and craziness as the nations rage, this is the time where the saints will shine. They who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. They patiently endure suffering even as they receive this collateral damage from the great battle that's raging in the nations. And we see this exhortation to endurance throughout the book of Revelation. John opens the book, again, going back to the first chapter, by, calling, by, by speaking of himself as your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Revelation 1, 9. The messages to the seven churches in the following chapters repeatedly call the, the churches to patiently endure. Now you may be tempted to think, like me, how will I stand up under such tribulation? Won't my faith fail? Maybe I feel like I can't even stand up under what's happening now. What if something else gets piled on top of this? How am I going to stand? How am I going to be one who patiently endures? Well, I hope and pray that you, like I was also comforted, you can be comforted by the words of Jesus in chapter 3 and his words to the church in Philadelphia. Chapter 3, verse 8. He says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. 
Anybody here today feeling that way? I have but little power. I feel that way so often. (laughs) I am weak. Do you feel, I don't think I can stand up under much more. Well, Jesus has a message here for you. You have, I know, he says, I know that you have but little power. He knows. He is the God who sees. He sees your weakness. And he says, you have kept my word and not denied my name. It's as if he's saying, I am giving you the grace to patiently endure and I am going to continue to give this to you. Come what may. This is the destiny of the saints. To patiently endure. To keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. And then in verse 13 of our passage here, there is this great hope. Verse 13, it says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. We have a rest coming, and it's an eternal rest. And the end of this book gives a glorious picture and and a little taste of what this rest will look like. That's an interesting contrast in this passage because it's talking about those who worship, who are worshipers of the beast, they have no rest. But the patiently enduring saints will rest from their labors. I would encourage you to read the last two chapters of this book if you need a a refresher on what that rest is going to look like. The river of life and this, the, this beautiful imagery of the, the tree of life that is growing up on both sides of the river and talking about the leaves of this tree are for the healing of the nations. There's going to be a healing from all this collateral damage that we've received in this great battle that's waging. And if we turn back to Revelation 7, we see the same hope there. In that worship scene, the angel asks John, who are these people that are clothed in white here? And John says, sir, you know. The angel says, yes, I do know. (laughs) These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are the ones coming out of this great trial. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There before the throne of God, serving him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thank you, Jesus. So in summary, there's an eternal gospel going forth, calling all the nations to worship. There's a great battle that's going on for their allegiance, and we, the saints, are in the middle of it, and we have a call to patient endurance and faith in Christ and this great hope that's coming of eternal rest. So what 
what could be our response to this text? I have three, three, three possible responses. One is worship God. Let worship be the fuel for mission's flame, it's been said. Worship God for his amazing salvation plan. Worship over the word as you see this plan unfold from cover to cover in the scriptures. Do things that expand your knowledge of of God's salvation plan. For us, that was books. Uh, Taking the perspectives course was an amazing call into worship. Learning about what God has promised in his word, what he's done throughout history, and how he's fulfilling exactly what he said he's going to do in his word. Worship this God. And that's the call in, in the beginning of this text. Fear God. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth. Secondly, acknowledge the battle and engage in it, in this great, stu- this great struggle. We've been studying Ephesians. Ephesians 6. We know we're in a fight. And the exhortation for us today is with the Lamb, with the Spirit, stay engaged in the battle. Stay engaged with the nations. And so many of you are in this body in so many ways. Staying engaged with the nations, the nations that are right here in our midst, the nations that are among us in these neighborhoods, and those that have gone out to engage with the nations in a far place. Stay engaged in this battle. So many ways uh, God has called his church to to be engaged in this struggle. Fight against discouragement. It can be so tempting to to give in to those thoughts of God's not going to do this. He's not going to bring these people to worship him. Look how hard they are. Look how resistant they are. Look how, how much in bondage they are to the sin. Fight against complacency. That temptation to return to the comfortable spot. This, this work of crossing the culture is just too hard. It's just too many things I don't understand. Too much confusion. I go back to this place of comfort. And many of us have that option. Fight against that complacency by God's grace. And fight against what Pastor John reminded us is our declaration of independence from God. Fight against prayerlessness in your life. And that's the third thing that I see as a a possible response for us. Cry out to God through faith in Jesus. Cry out to him for that patient endurance that he's showing us here. Cry out in prayer. We're weak. Like that, the word to the church in Philadelphia, you have but little power. We are weak, but there is another descriptive word in this book for the saints. It's not in our text, but it's all throughout the book, and it's used about the lamb as well. And that word is conqueror. Conquerors, that is our destiny as well as saints, to be those who overcome. In Revelation chapter 12, just a, a 
coming right after these verses that are talking about the devil, the accuser of the brethren. uh, Revelation 12 verse 11 says, they have conquered him. They've conquered Satan, this accuser of the brethren, this accuser of the church. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. And this is the grace that God is promising to give to his saints who are trusting in him. That belief, that faith in Christ, trusting him to the end, that patient endurance that we don't know if we're going to be able to walk in, he's promising to give it through Christ and because of the blood of the Lamb, even to the point of death. And he may call some in this room to walk through that. We don't know. And we don't have the grace for that right now if we thought about that in this moment. But we can trust him to fulfill his promise for those who believe. So coming back to a hundred years ago and fast forwarding to 2012, our team began a work in southeast Sulawesi in, in around the year 2012. And our team leaders chose this province of Indonesia because it was one of the provinces with the most unreached people groups of all the provinces in Indonesia. Yes, the church was there, but it had continued to exist only within certain people groups. And in February of uh, 2016, the the Protestant Church of Southeast Sulawesi actually held a celebration commemorating those hundred years since the gospel had entered their province. And the following year, I sat in the office of the president and vice president of that denomination. And this is the denomination that grew out of the initial work of Hendrik Vanderklift. And on the wall in that office, they have a vision statement written I translated from Indonesian, but it, but it says something like, an independent, mature, and missionary church. And the vice president stood by that wall with the, the writing there, and he said, he said to me, this is a good statement, but what have we done to actually fulfill it, especially the missionary part? A few months later, he stood before a gathering of dozens of pastors and church leaders from various denominations, and he confessed in front of this group of people, we have had the gospel here for more than a hundred years, and we have not done much with it at all. But now we're going to change. They went on to sign an agreement with a missions network to work together with that missions network to equip the church in the province of Southeast Sulawesi to pray to give, and to even begin raising up and sending out their own people into the unreached around them. I even found this on a statement on the church's website, which is amazing, that they they put this out, this publicly, that they would admit their lack, admit their wrong so publicly. And it says, We, the pastors and synod leaders of the Protestant Church of Sulawesi, acknowledge that for many years... We have not cared about the gospel message in Southeast Sulawesi. 
During this time, we've been busy with our respective churches and have lived as if we have closed eyes and ears regarding the tasks given to us by the Lord in Matthew 18, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. Based on the existing data, it says we have the responsibility to deliver the news of salvation to at least 20 unreached people groups in our area of Southeast Sulawesi, and we have not done that yet. With all the support of prayer, funding, and our people, we are convinced that the mission of spreading the gospel that began with the Dutch government many years ago can be carried on today. Amen. And this is what has been unfolding in our province over the last two years. These are some of the churches that previously relocated pastors that got too excited about missions. There was one pastor that our team was working with. He got excited about this going out to these people groups and the church moved him to another city so that he didn't stir up anything in that church. So this is an amazing work of God in this place. It may have looked like the gospel failed in this province. For so long it stayed in just one people group. But God has preserved the saints in this city. And he's been awakening the church again to engage with the Lamb, with the Spirit, for the sake of the nations, to engage in this battle. Now there are, there are 27 churches, and not even from this one denomination, who have adopted unreached people groups. 27 churches and counted. And counting. They've committed to pray for the people around them and to think about how they can engage with the Lamb in, in, in the gospel being proclaimed to the nations. You see, the gospel that they have been given is not just the gospel for Southeast Sulawesi and the Protestant church that's there. And they're waking up to that. It is an eternal gospel and it will be proclaimed to every tribe and tongue, and nation, and language in this whole province, and in this whole world. And there will be worshipers from every single one of those tribes. It's a promise, brothers and sisters. It's going to happen. I thank God for the joy of being able to tell you a little bit of this story. And as I was researching some of this history, I, I just had a moment of that inexpressible joy welling up like that I get to be a small part of this just even just a a front row seat sitter to see what God is doing in this province and to report back to you our church family and if you ask us what has most encouraged us over these few years we've been in Indonesia this story is at the top of the list and God has called us and this church to have that small part in that work. So please pray for us. Pray for our team. Pray for these churches that God is awakening. Melody and I were talking this week just thinking about what, what is Satan's response going to be to this? 27 churches and counting that have adopted unreached people groups and are thinking seriously about how to invest their funds and even their people into this work. What is Satan's response going to be? 
It's like at the end of Ephesians that we looked at together a few weeks ago. Paul, knowing his weakness, asked for prayer. And like I remember Pastor John saying, is that's if Paul was saying, it's not automatic that we're going to, that he was, that it's not automatic that Paul was going to share the gospel in these places God brought him to. It's not automatic for our team, for us, that this is going to happen. And it's not automatic for these churches that things are just going to continue going as they're going now. So pray. There are many hindrances, but the gospel is going forth and we implore the saints to pray also for us, just like Paul said at the end of that book. So the gospel is going forth. The nations are being called to worship. And there's a great battle for their allegiance. And we, the saints, engage with the Lamb in this battle. And we have victory through the patient endurance and faith in Christ. Let's pray together. We praise you, God, for these reminders We praise you for putting the book of Revelation in the Bible. How much we need it, Lord, to see those vividly clear glimpses of of the things that are about to come. The things that are soon to take place. We know that those are the things that are now taking place. So that we don't feel strange, Lord, when we find ourselves in the middle of a battle the battle within, the battle without, the battle of the accuser, Satan, accusing us in our hearts, accusing us in our thoughts, and the battle without, as we see so many around us, so many around this world, caught under the deception, drunk with the wine of the passion of sin. We pray, Lord, for more of your grace. We come boldly before your throne. We ask for more grace so that we could be a people that would patiently endure under trial. Trial has already come in each one of our lives and trial will come again and continue to come. We pray for patient endurance that we with you, Jesus, the Lamb, with the Holy Spirit can engage and continue to engage in this, this battle And we set our eyes, Lord, on the rest and the healing and the joy and the redemption that is to come. So please continue to encourage our hearts. Bless this church, Lord. Bless this body. Bless each one who's hurting. Bless each one who's confused. Bless each one who's especially feeling that having little strength sort of feeling in their hearts or in their bodies and strengthen us for your great work. Draw us into worship, Lord. We love you. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, the Lion and the Lamb. Amen.